0: I have an update on the Amber Spradlin murder case that's out of Floyd County. We have a new poll in the governor's race. I'll go over what the numbers mean. And finally, as police departments around the state are adding flock cameras, license plate readers, and now surveillance systems that can tap into privately owned cameras, concerns about a growing surveillance state in Kentucky are getting bigger. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. As always, I ask that you please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Of course, as well, if you're listening to this on the podcast form, leave a review. Um, And I I do want to take a second, if you want to reach out to the show, if you've got any tips, uh, you got stories you want me to cover, uh, you have an opinion you want to share, you can always email the show at info at theandrewshow.com. That's info at theandrewshow.com. And you can tell me uh, what you want to see that we're covering. We're seeing a lot of growth here. And so I want to encourage you all to continue to spread the word about this podcast because I think it's incredibly important uh, what we're doing here. We're doing a daily show that can share news and information that's going around uh, the state, but also has a conservative viewpoint to the commentary. However, without further ado, let's dig into it. So a few weeks ago, I talked about the Amber, uh, I think it was last week, maybe Amber, no, two weeks ago the Amber Spradlin murder in Floyd County. Now, this took place back on June 18th. And the episode where I first talked about it is called The Politics of the Amber Spradlin Murder. I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode to help you understand all the ins and outs. If um, I'm going to summarize it here so you don't have to go back and listen to it. But if you want to know more about it, you're interested by the story, you can go back and listen to that. But just to quickly summarize, Amber Spradlin was murdered back on June 18th. Um, She was stabbed multiple times violently in a home, and out of that home, there was two 911 calls made. Now, technically, the 911 calls were made on June 18th, but after midnight, so it was like early morning calls, and the two calls came about five hours apart, and the first call came from the home, was not responded to by police. And then the second call was a call to say that Amber had been found murdered in the home. And obviously that was responded to. So the whole controversy outside the murder itself, uh, surrounds the fact that there is this first call made that wasn't uh, responded to. And the, the politics around that is multiple layered, but basically In the county, you have some conflict going on between the Democrats that are still holding office, uh, such as the county attorney, and then the Republicans or independents, the registered independents in the office that are holding office. And they, uh, a while ago, switched dispatch services from being with the state to being held by Prestonsburg, who had their own dispatch, and Prestonsburg now is providing it for the entire county. They did this uh, because it was about half the cost or so um, of the KSP what ksp wanted to charge ksp wanted to charge a whole lot more to continue to provide dispatch services to the county so they kicked it over and so uh this murder takes place and what you'll see is political opportunists jumped on the fact this first call wasn't answered in order to make uh this murder uh, about something uh, that it wasn't and that was about uh, bad police response well um What's what's interesting here is that recently LEX18 did a follow-up story. So LEX18 a lot of news stories have been covering this and LEX18 did a follow-up story that I think is truly some of the worst journalism I've seen out of LEX18 and and that's saying something. LEX18 does some pretty bad journalism and I understand what I mean by um, bad journalism. You see I'm a podcaster, I guess you'd call me. Uh, I offer commentary. Um, I do dig on some stories and information. I collect up the information that comes from sources. uh, And then I deliver that to you in a more maybe perhaps interesting format than the news typically will, while at the same time taking a story made the news only spent four minutes on and digging into some of the different ins and outs of that to further explain the story in a way that makes sense. I wouldn't call myself a journalist. I don't break stories. Um, I guess there's times where I act in journalism, but I am a commentator. I'm allowed to interject my own opinions, and I am able to uh, quote-unquote actually be wrong more than the media is simply because I'm just giving you my opinions and opinions can be wrong but when you present yourself as a news source as a full-fledged out completely unbiased news source I am a news source but I'm certainly not unbiased and so when you present yourself as an unbiased news source there's certain levels of journalism I come to expect from you as do the people listen. And in this follow-up story that LEX18 did, they certainly left behind what would be good journalism. Now, before I play this once again, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the other episode so you can understand why this call part is so important if you don't get it, um, because it really covers a lot of that. And so in this interview, LEX18 is going to talk to Amber Spradlin's uh, cousin which is uh, a Dr. Hall. And the reason why is that Dr. Hall Amber's and the Amber's family is um attacking the county and applying blame to them and into the Prestonsburg dispatch service for not responding to the first call saying that if they'd responded to the first call. Amber would have never been murdered. And I can't tell, um, what would have happened. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I can't see what would have happened. Had they responded, perhaps Amber still would have been murdered because, well, the call wasn't about Amber and it wasn't about anybody in trouble. You see the call. Uh, and, and this is what we knew at the time. The call was about somebody um, having a, a sort of a medical issue, but it was determined there was no response needed. And so this is what LEX-18. So, so the cousin, uh, Dr. Hall, has now listened to that call. And this is what she has to say about it. I did get to listen to the 911 call. And in my opinion, I feel like it is something that should have been responded to. Dr. Debbie Hall is Spradlin's cousin. She stayed in touch with investigators. The phone call was not about Amber, and it was not made by Amber, but it was still information in the phone call that I feel like had it been anywhere else, there would have been a response. Someone would have have at least made a welfare check. Dr Hall told us the call mentioned a man was drunk and bleeding profusely, perhaps after a fall and that someone had taken the phone and said they had it under control. Even if the call wasn't about Amber Hall believes if officials had responded, it could have made a difference. So someone called 911 reported that someone was bleeding profusely and no one came. Correct. All right. So there you hear the little bit of an interview and a little bit of attention there. Now, the Dr. Hall said something that I think is incredibly important to be zeroed in on. Had this been any other place, it maybe would have been responded to. And perhaps that is accurate. If this call had taken place in Lexington, where, um, well, there is a lot of people, perhaps the call would have been responded to. But It wasn't, and the reason why was completely ignored by LEX. They kind of mentioned it. They said somebody took the phone and said it was under control. Now, they didn't tell you who that person was. Um, I don't know if Dr. Hall told them who that person was. Um, I have to admit that I haven't listened to the call, though I have heard from multiple sources that have actually listened to the call. And um, this is what they say is on the full call. This is what they said happened. And if Lex 18 bothered to ask a question about who picked up the phone, um, maybe they would be able to, quote unquote, wrap their mind around why nobody responded. You see, the call started out, and this is just what I'm told um, from my sources, uh, multiple sources that have listened to it. There's a TikToker doing some TikToks about it, too, that has apparently listened to the call. And so this call starts out with a group of people calling to complain or to ask uh, that the county send out uh, kind of like a, a drunk, to come get this drunk person. And they're just drunk. They're not breaking any laws. Um, the way the call is set up, I'm told that it, at first the dispatcher thought they were saying, come get this drunk person out of their own home, which is clear you can't like, You can't arrest somebody for being drunk in their own home. And, you know, while I think maybe some bigger cities may offer some type of, you know, oh, if they're just drunk, come grab them kind of thing. The county, Floyd County does not offer that. If they're responding to a call, they are either going to be arresting somebody or providing medical attention. And I'm told that's what the dispatcher tells them. It says, I can't show up there. We have to arrest somebody or provide medical attention. And uh, the dispatcher asks something along the lines of, do you want them arrested? And um, they said, I'm told that the the caller said, no, 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 they're not doing anything illegal. And they said, well, we can provide medical attention. Does anybody need medical attention then? And the caller says, oh yeah, he uh, has fallen and um, is, is bleeding profusely. That's what they said. At this point, I'm told that the call was grabbed now by this other person who said they had it under control. Who was this other person? It was a doctor a prominent dentist in the area, a well-known dentist who owns several businesses in the area. Now, my cousin, let's lay out a few things here. First off, dentists are medical doctors. Um, dentists receive a fair amount of medical training. Uh, some would say they receive more medical training than EMTs or paramedics would, the people you'd send out there. And especially in a small town where you have, uh, you know, my... I I, come from, I grew up in a small town, and all my family comes from the Appalachians. In fact, one of my cousins is a dispatcher in a small Appalachian county, and you know they have their frequent flyers. They kind of know everybody, and especially prominent people in the county, they're going to know, and you know them personally. You know them firsthand. You know the dispatcher because they're based out of Prestonsburg which is in Floyd County, and they live in Prestonsburg, and it's a not a super big county, they know the doctor on the other end of the call. They know him. And he picks up the phone, and he says, this is what I'm told, the doctor picks up the phone and says, "Uh, no, he's not bleeding profusely. He's got a small cut above his eye. It's fine. You don't need to send anybody out. If uh, we need any help, I'll give you a call back here in five or six minutes, but it's fine. You don't need to send anybody. And the dispatcher says, okay, and hangs up the phone. Now, if that was in Lexington, perhaps when a doctor picked up the phone, they would still send somebody out or local, but this is in Floyd County. You had a doctor with more medical training one would argue, <laughs> and how to actually deal with lacerate. I mean, remember, dentists do deal with cuts and lacerations and things like that. So with more medical training, one would argue, than a paramedic or EMT, saying that everything's fine, you don't need to send an ambulance out. And you know them. So it's very reasonable for you to say, okay, they said it was fine. I mean, clearly the call didn't even start out as a medical emergency. The call started out as somebody complaining about somebody being drunk in a private residence. That's how the call started. It wasn't until they said they couldn't respond to just come get somebody because they're too drunk inside a private home that they then switched to this now medical emergency. See, that would be proper journalism to ask who picked up the call? Who said that everything was fine? Does that person have a medical doctorate? Is that person well-known in the community? Because if the answer is yes to those two things, and also, by the way, it was that person's home as well. It wasn't like that person was visiting somebody else. It was this doctor's house. That would be good journalism. I'm not here to blame. It is not Dr. Hall's fault for pushing on this call. You know, she has been ginned up by a county attorney. She's been ginned up by the, the p- political opportunists. They're trying to make this murder into something it isn't, which is about 911 dispatch, because they are so determined to be right. So they've ginned her up into uh, uh, believing that this could have all been prevented if they responded to the call. I don't blame her for now having listened to the call and being like, I think maybe I still would have responded. I think if it's somewhere else, somebody would have responded. Well, but it's not somewhere else. It's in Floyd County. It's not her fault. She was constantly told without having listened to the call that they should have responded. And now that she has listened to the call What's she gonna do? Say, well, maybe they shouldn't respond. I mean, she still has a lawsuit going on. It's really—I I, just—I don't blame her for that. I do blame Lex Eighteen for not mentioning who took the call in the first place, because this is the kind of stuff that turns. Uh, uh, what th- this is really what causes the problems with our media right now. I mean, they—if they, you just heard that story and you didn't know anything else about it, you would be like really upset. About the government, but knowing now what you know, and it's being reported that in the full call, the person who took it was a medical doctor well known in the area. Yeah, I get it. He's a dentist, but he still has more medical training than the people I would say. He still has more medical training uh, than the people who would be sent out to deal with the call. And I'm not here to, you know, know, I'm sure there's EMT and paramedics out there that are like, I have way more training than a dentist. Maybe, but let's be honest. If we're talking about a cut on somebody, whether it's a dentist, a paramedic, a medical doctor, it really doesn't matter. If they say everything's fine and you know them personally, you'd be like, okay, but Going back into it, it's this type of behavior by the media that has completely really delivered what I believe is the misjustice here. I mean, they have been focusing on this call situation to the point that they have almost ignored the fact that somebody was stabbed multiple times in a home three months ago that only a handful of people were in, and they have yet to make an arrest. I mean, KSP says that they're waiting on DNA evidence to come back. I'm not going to pretend to be a gigantic, uh, super smart police investigator. I'm not going to pretend to be that at all. However, I do think when you have a high profile murder where media all around the state is covering it and it's violent and and it's awful and it's grisly where there's multiple stabs and you only have a handful of people in the place that were there. You would maybe rush the DNA evidence, but the police are saying they're still waiting for the DNA evidence three months later to come back. That's what, of course, the news is reporting. Who knows if that's all that they said they were waiting on. But they did mention DNA back on August 30th is something they were waiting for. So about two and a half months it's been. And they're still waiting for DNA evidence to come back. Like I said, I don't pretend to be an expert, but you would think that this would be dealt with a lot quicker. But instead, everybody has been focusing on this first call that wasn't responded to, assuming that it was just wasn't responded to because of erroneous behavior without listening to it. And now we find out, well, perhaps that's not the case. Instead, we have opportunistic politicians that have been muddling the issue. And yet... We have a murder that there's only a handful of suspects in. There can't be that many. That has yet to be solved. You know, what's funny is at the time where they were talking about this call and everything else, there was a lot of angst, protests, type behavior, demonstrations, uh, being upset at the government there for the quote-unquote mishandling. But yet, where is the angst, the upset, the protests uh, the, the anger over the fact that it's been almost three months. They haven't arrested anybody yet. I mean, it just feels like when somebody's brutally murdered, there's only a handful of people. It shouldn't take three months to figure it out. Like I said, I'm not a police officer. I'm not an investigator. I understand police work takes time, but come on. Still waiting on DNA evidence, two and a half, three months later. Come on. So coming up, we have a new poll in the governor's race. We'll take a look at uh, what that means and what's going on with that right after this short break. According to 538, the governor's election has had five polls that they've tracked. And there's been a recent one, newly released. This was a poll out of the governor's race. Well, let's take a look at these five polls that 538 has in the Kentucky governor's race that um, stretches back to May 22nd. So... We have um, Signal initially putting out a poll. Uh, I believe that was from within, that's a, that's a more conservative polling group, uh, putting out a poll saying that Bashir, Cameron are about dead even. This was in May of 2023. Since then, we have seen the Pritchard Committee, which is a uh, put out by the Public Opinion Strategies, um, putting out a poll saying that Bashir was 52%, Cameron 42%. 42, back in June, about a month later. And then July, about a month after that, we have the Republican State Leadership Committee putting out a another poll um, that says, hey, it's, it's 49-45. And then in August, they had a, a poll early August that says it's 49-41. And now we've moved on to August 30th where it is now 51% Bashir, 42% Cameron. Now, the last two, the 49-41 and 51-42, was funded by the Bashir campaign. So I do understand that. However, um, these are all pretty uh, okay polling places that aren't super, they, you know, they're, they're considered um, while they may be partisan at times or used commonly by somebody, they are considered pretty accurate ish, uh, to look at. And certainly this is not spelling a good situation for Cameron because, um, you know, really may June, the campaign didn't really start, but since June, even internal, uh, polling from the Cameron campaign, I'm told, uh, didn't show Bashir breaking 49%. Now with this newest poll where he's at 51%, uh, Cameron's got some issues. The reason why it's so important that he wasn't breaking 49%, and we see that too with the July and August polls, is it means that, see, see Bashir's well-known to everybody. So that means that if you are not voting for Bashir at this point, Um, you will most likely end up voting for Cameron. That's why him not breaking 50% is so uh, important or or is thought of as important by the Cameron campaign. But with the new poll, it leaves some questions uh, to be asked. The other thing, too, is that this most recent poll was for likely voters. Um, That is um, meaning that they're not just voters. They're people who are most likely to turn out and vote. Uh, The one before this that had Bashir at 49-41 was just voters. Um, But here you had uh, 716 likely voters in this most recent uh, poll that shows Bashir up nine points on Cameron. So what's going on here? what's this mean? Well, first, the Cameron campaign really only pushes heavy in the last month, uh, in my experience. I mean, this is what they did in the primary. You know, in the primary, you're sitting around, you're seeing, uh, um, you know, obviously Kraft because she had the money putting out a lot of things early on and and continuing to put them out for uh, several months. But really, the Cameron campaign didn't fire up until about the last month. And that's generally considered a good practice because people believe that individuals are not paying attention until the last month. Now, if you have unlimited money or a lot of money, uh, you want to campaign a a fair amount beginning early on, but just make sure you're, you have enough to do your big last month push, but you still want to have enough to campaign fairly early, early on. However, I don't think Cameron's idea of pushing really heavy in the last month. Um, Now that Bashir's over 50% in this poll, I I think that strategy needs to change. I mean, make no mistake, I want Bashir to lose. And longtime listeners know that when I talk about the Cameron campaign, I'm talking about it as if I'm giving advice because I want him to win. Don't take it to mean like I'm, I'm just criticizing Cameron all the time or anything like that. What I'm doing is I'm giving advice that I hope the Cameron campaign would follow uh, in order to ensure that Amy Bashir loses. That's, that's how I'm positioning this. So as I go forward, and if you're a Republican who really likes Cameron, don't be offended. I am literally just talking, uh, trying to give unsolicited uh, advice that I'm sure the Cameron campaign probably will never hear or won't listen to. Well, I don't think that's accurate. I actually think uh, some people on the Cameron campaign listen to this podcast based on some things. But still unsolicited advice. So what do I think he's doing wrong? What do I think is going on? First, I think his campaign staffing is uh, bad. It's really bad. Um, It's mainly made up of establishment McConnell staffers. I mean, McConnell's chief of staff is one of the lead people on the Cameron campaign, the people who have been seen as McConnell's gatekeeper, people who McConnell has supported, people who've who've tied onto that McConnell uh, coattails or McConnell's really elevated individuals that aren't necessarily politicians per se, but are, are political adjacent, things like consultants um, and others uh, are really making up the bulk of Cameron's campaign, Cameron's uh, um, transition uh, committee, people who are... Who are You know, if Cameron wins, he's got to fill up his cabinet, of course. You know, and that's really being surrounded by a lot of McConnell people. And um, those people who've been around McConnell for a long time, on top of the fact that they're more establishment and uh, they're not very exciting. And for people like me who understand who they are and what they believe in, we're not super Uh, really super excited about that choice. And while I don't think there's a large percentage of people out there that will not vote for Cameron um, because his staffing is full of McConnell staffers, um, there are people. And you need every vote uh, you can get in this situation, especially when it looks like it's going to be very close uh, if Cameron wins. And I have to ask, why hasn't he... He's he's really only staffed with people from the one, and honestly, I believe while they are the sect in power because they have the money, they represent the smallest percentage of actual base voters to help push his his messaging and steer his campaign. He's not really bringing in people that represent all the different kinds of Republicans. He's not bringing in you know the the always Trumpers. He's not bringing in uh, a lot of liberty people to give advice to his campaign or, or the conservative. Republicans. Republicans. He's not bringing in a lot of Christian conservative um, people in order to talk about the campaign. He's really just bringing in the classic establishment McConnell staffers. And I'm afraid that's who's going to make up most his cabinet too. And so that's certainly depressing um, and will cause some people not to turn out and vote. But also those people campaign in a certain way. They campaign in a team red shirt versus team blue shirt mentality. I mean, one, most of these people uh, weren't around and somewhere, but they weren't around or that involved with McConnell uh, when McConnell won his first election all those many, many years ago. They've been involved with McConnell since he's been in the incumbent. And how McConnell's held power, especially in the general, is by uh, making sure that he makes the Democrat he's running against look extremely liberal and far left as possible, which works against people like, for example, McGrath, his last opponent because McGrath had good little hits where she said, I'm the farthest left person in Kentucky, or she said something like that. And so you're able to make that claim. You're able to make that call about McGrath. The problem is Bashir is not Amy McGrath. Bashir is not a challenger to McConnell, the incumbent. Bashir is the incumbent. And though he is far left, he is in office. And so you can't make him into a boogeyman to be super afraid of. Part of that is because his, his desires and, and his overreach and, and what if, if his, his liberal predations are being hemmed in by a Republican legislature that, is, that it has been keeping his uh, more wild-eyed leftist ideas a little more hemmed in. So you haven't gotten that full brunt, but at the same time, because he's in office and he's been hemmed in, he just can't be the boogeyman to be afraid of. Uh, everyone has seen what he is for four years and people have forgot about COVID. D- make no mistake, if, if COVID was going on right now and people actually remembered some of the things that went on and, oh, geez, I hope. Cameron does a series of ads just on, on Bashir's COVID handling, uh, where, you know, there's some calls out there, of people returning in their neighbors for not wearing Matt, you know, though, that kind of stuff really was ugly. And I think if Cameron played some of those, it would certainly turn some people against him. But anyways, it's hard to make him the boogeyman to be afraid of, um, because people have had four years of him. And while I know his far-left administration has hurt us, like mismanaging and failures, you know, things I cover often on this podcast, I also know how many millions that Bashir is spending on leftist boondoggles. And this is something where, this is this is where the real difference between if we have a solid conservative governor, which I would hope Cameron is, once again, his staffing doesn't make me super juiced uh, about that, but... Anyways, um, you know, if Cameron uh, wins, one of the things when people ask, well, what's the real difference? This is actually what the real difference at least should be. You see, the way we do budgeting in the state, while the legislature can uh, uh, hem in Bashir's overall spending, he can't control the fact, they can't control, that Bashir will spend millions of dollars on leftist social engineering projects and leftist boondoggles. And to give you an example of some of those, um, you know, Bashir spends uh, millions of dollars a year on programs to help specifically uh, underrepresented people. So these are mainly minorities start businesses while not offering those same uh, programs and opportunities to white citizens who are of the same social economical class simply because of their skin color. That is a leftist boondoggle that is wrong. Um, Bashir spends millions of dollars on DEI trainings and modules. The Bashir uh, board of education has spent literally millions upon millions of dollars pushing out DEI consultants, um, for the, the state and for our schools. So Cameron can say, if you elect me, those kinds of things will stop things that the legislature can't handle. And the reason why the legislature can't deal with it is goes into how, well, the, this, the budget is made. The budget is made uh, by appropriating large pots of money for each department. And it's up to that department to decide how it spends that money. So the legislature doesn't go through and say, you're going to spend this amount on facilities, this amount on staffing, you're going to hire this many. They could, they have that power, but that's not how they do it. What they do is they say, okay, here's a hundred million dollars for this department. Here's uh, $500 million for this department. Here's this amount of money for this department and so on and so forth. So Republican governor who'll stand by his principles, who uh, is willing to say, look, we're not going to spend this millions of taxpayer dollars on leftist spending certainly could deliver us a better state, but that would require Cameron to be able to message on it. And it's hard. It is hard to message on it because you got to have people understand what's going on. But at the same time, you could cut some pretty hitting 30-second ads to go over Bashir spending millions of our dollars on leftist boondoggles, like blah, 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 so on and so forth, and going through it. Now, understand the media is going to work against you and try to call you out for that, but as long as you have your facts at the ready, um, you should be ready to go. But the point is, is Cameron has got to start messaging on those things and then messaging that he will be different. Why? Well, because it's not enough. See, you want to get people not just fired up to vote against someone, but you need to get them fired up to vote for you. See, Bashir has people fired up to vote for him. Cameron is trying to fire up people to vote against Bashir. And I just don't think that works necessarily as well with somebody who the general population doesn't perceive as all that scary because they don't understand how government operates and what's going on and what Bashir's really doing with millions of their dollars. And really the Cameron campaign has to be a bit of an educational campaign and you can't educate people in the last month. You should have been doing this, I think a little way out of slightly educating people. You just don't have that cut of him saying I'm the farthest left person. So if I'm the Cameron campaign, here's what I'd really be worried about. I'd be worried about firing up that base, turning out people, and I'd be doing that by making sure I'm messaging on a conservative, not a moderate, but a conservative talking points. Things like, I'm going to cut spending. Things like, I'm going to battle uh, corruption. Those types of things that get people fired up. And I think that would deliver a win. And I'm not just saying that because I feel like that or that is just what I want out of government. It's because I think that's what the facts say. I mean, let's look at Northern Kentucky. <clears throat> Historically and four years ago, Northern Kentucky just didn't show up to vote in the off-year elections. Large parts of Northern Kentucky went wholeheartedly for Bashir four years ago. Even people who vote otherwise 100% of the time don't turn out to vote on the off-year elections up in Northern Kentucky all the time. But yet, the same area that Bashir won produces some of the most, quote-unquote, extreme by media standards, far-right legislators. Such as Doan, Proctor, and Rawlings, who, by the way, all beat out very moderate liberal Republicans and then went on, of course, to win in the generals by a, a fair amount if they were even challenged. And not only do we have Doan, Rawlings, and Proctor, new electors, but we also have Maddox, Rayborn, Senator John Schickel. These are six of some of the most liberty, conservative, anti establishment legislators we have. That's not all of them, but six of them a really large portion and they're coming from the same region. They're being elected by the same area that Bashir won four years ago. This should tell Cameron something. This should tell his team something. This should tell him that bold and conservative people that people are excited to turn out and vote for, bold and conservative candidates, that people are excited to turn out and vote for, is who will win in these areas. Because it's not just about voting against Bashir. Because currently, Cameron's messaging doesn't appear to be working. Instead, he's gotta start putting out some conservative, bold ideas, not just platitudes, but actual pointing to things and saying, this is what will change. Something to get people excited about and something for people to see it is wrong. Because my concern here is that Cameron loses, and we get four more years of Bashir wasting our money. And then on top of that, the Republican big heads think that, well, it's because we message too conservative. We talk about social issues. We need to be more moderate because Bashir won because he was more moderate. Well, you don't realize Bashir is already sucking up the moderate lane because he's perceived as that way. Even though he isn't, he's perceived as that way. So he's sucking up this moderate lane. Stop trying to message to moderate voters. Message to the lane that Bashir will never pick up. And that is a conservative lane. Like I said, I'm concerned that these big heads think, well, we need to be even more moderate. We might as well just be Democrats. And they won't realize you didn't message well on conservative issues. You didn't talk about cutting spending. You didn't talk about Bashir's liberalism as driving waste and corruption in our government. You didn't present bold and specific ideas to really point out, one, where Bashir's utterly failing, and two, where you will succeed. And I really hope his campaign looks at this and changes course, looks at this poll and changes course, and starts listening to conservative voices and what we're saying. Cameron, you're not inspiring the base, and you want to inspire people to work hard for you and show up and vote for you. You know, hopefully you look at this most recent poll, where Bashir has broken 50%, and you realize, hey, maybe we need to change a little bit of our messaging here. Well, when we come back, we'll be talking about the growing surveillance state in Kentucky right now. Um, We'll talk about that after this short break. All right, so before I go further talking about police surveillance, I want to clarify a point. So often, people think you can't be against things like no-knock warrants or police surveillance state or have an opinion on police policies while still, quote-unquote, backing the blue. In the same way that people think because I have a don't tread on me flag behind me, it means I also can't back the blue. So much of this comes from, I think, a lack of nuance. I can have opinions on police procedure while supporting police officers themselves. I can think that the public harassing officers and protesting them on so many of these instances where frankly, the police did nothing wrong, is incorrect and is causing our officers to not want to work uh, anymore in the field and is causing a lot of this officer shortage, which is causing uh, some of our safety situations. And I think that I can, while I can disagree with the policy, for example, I disagree with no-knock warrants personally, but I also disagree with BLM. I don't think all cops are racist. I mean, surely I think there are racist cops the same way there's racist anybody but I don't think police violence against citizens is even necessarily a gigantic and large problem. I do see it. And I think that, um, there are issues that I see with it, um, where people have been shot that shouldn't have been. And I certainly see the federal government, especially the FBI overreaching in a lot of situations. Um, but I think that's more of an individual situation. I don't think castigating all cops is violent and racist. Um, is accurate or even helps deal with the problems as a whole. If we have an issue with how police are behaving, I think we just have to look at police policy. And um, and, you know, for, for an example, I, I said earlier on, I don't like no-knock warrants. And I don't like no-knock warrants because I support the Second Amendment. And I also don't like seeing officers shot in situations where nobody can be held accountable for shooting them. There have been several cases all across this country of police no-knock warrant entering a home, even criminals' homes, and the criminal has shot the officer and then, when taken to court for shooting an officer, is completely held uh, with no liability for doing so and is, uh, gets off, quote-unquote, scot-free for shooting the officer. They may be still convicted for all their other crimes, but they can get off scot-free for uh, shooting the officer during a no-knock warrant. And so because I live in a world where I believe in the Second Amendment, and I believe that if somebody comes into your home banging down the door unannounced, you have the right to shoot them, I don't think officers should be banging down a door coming in unannounced. That's just my opinion. You can disagree. You can think that no-knock warrants are completely necessary, and I think we can agree to disagree on that. Like I said, I don't like putting officers in a position or they can be legally shot and killed. I don't like that. But at the same time, the fact that an officer take the Breonna Taylor shooting executes what is a policy from within the uh, uh, police department that they're working for, that doesn't make them necessarily a bad person. I don't expect police officers to be legal scholars. No, I expect them to understand the basics of what's right or wrong constitutionally. For an example... I expect that if a person is in a public place uh, doing a a protest or or public speech um, and the police know they're in a public space, no matter what they're saying speech wise, uh, as long as it is not um, something that is necessarily uh, like illegal, like, you know, I'm holding up a big sign of pornography and kids are now seeing that, which is illegal to expose children to pornography, um, unless they're doing something along those lines. Um, there is nothing that the officers should know not to arrest them. That's some basic constitutionality I think police officers understand. But when it comes to things like no-knock warrants, for some of you, the fact that I just made a constitutional argument about the Second Amendment as to why I'm against no-knock warrants, it might be the first time you've ever even thought about that or heard that argument. So I don't expect police officers to necessarily sit around and think about those things. Um, so, and at the same time, I believe that police officers are necessary to fulfill parts of the Constitution. As the government was formed, this is in the Constitution, you know, the government was formed to protect our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the only thing that can protect those, the only thing that allows me to own property, in a way, is because of the police and justice system. The only reason why you cannot simply come onto my land and shoot me in the face and now claim it as yours is because if you would do so, the justice system would hold you accountable for that. Now, I know some people claim, well, you just need to protect your land yourself. And I personally don't want to live in a world where your property rights are defined by simply how many guns can you get together compared to the person who wants to take your stuff. Uh, I prefer to live in a world where we can freely engage in commerce without being worried about the person across from us shooting us in the face. And so I do believe that if we don't want our rights tread on, we still need, and, and our lights tread on by other people, we need officers. But at the same time, we need to make sure those police officers are not treading on our rights as well. And some of that deals with police policy. So now that I've properly addressed any claims that my voiced opinions over government surveillance and the government surveillance state can't be used to perhaps claim I believe and think uh, that officers themselves are bad or the police departments should be defunded while at the same time protecting my thought process on how we support quote unquote police officers with still talking about policy. We can move on to the actual story here. I always, it's funny, some of these situations you have to throw in this disclaimer or people take you way out of context. And so you have flock cameras or uh, automatic license plate recognition systems, ALPRS. Uh, and so these have been up in a lot of towns here in Kentucky, here in Lexington, Louisville, all over. And these cameras are put up throughout a city. Um, And what they do is they rapidly read license plates of cars that pass by them. And the stated purpose of these cameras, because here in in Kentucky, it is currently illegal to have automated enforcement. So right now, cities can't put up red light cameras, though there have been some legislators trying to pass laws uh, to deal with that. We'll talk about that later on. So the stated purpose of this is that cars drive by then the plate is read against a quote unquote hot list or plates of interest. And then that alerts law enforcement that a vehicle of interest has been identified in an area and then they can deploy to those areas and do the final um, discovery of the vehicle. Now Lexington originally ran a pilot program on these recently. And the legislature has heard some hearings on these cameras as there's discussion about the legality banning or expanding of these types of things. Um, But now Lexington has stepped up the use of surveillance cameras with a new system called FUSIS, F-U-S-U-S, FUSIS, FUSIS. This system is already in use in Louisville and there's a few other cities around Kentucky looking at using it. And what FUSIS does is it combines the flock cameras, traffic cameras, and other government cameras with now civilian cameras. They say businesses and homes will be able to quote unquote opt into their system using their doorbell cameras or their business cameras um, in order to be using the system. Now, supporters for these types of surveillance systems would say that it helps to stop crime. They talk about their recovered stolen vehicles, missing people, murder suspects, the list goes on and on. The tractors say that privacy won't be maintained and the camera systems can be used to now easily surveil people. When Lexington rolled out the Fussa system, they said privacy would be maintained and cameras would only be accessed if there's an incident in the area. But that seems like a rather broad statement to me. I mean, how long till that incident becomes, hey, we want to uh, surveil this person or we want to just take a little peek? Um, What are your safeguards that this will only be accessed uh, when there is something going on in your area? And what does that mean exactly? Um, Now, more skeptical people when they're talking about this would point to that our government has labeled people going to school board meetings as domestic terrorists. Would they be now considering that somebody lives near you as part of a person's uh, incident in an area and this person being labeled as a domestic terrorist? So now they would surveil them using their doorbell cameras across the street, flock cameras in the area. They'd point out saying that, well, um, you know, people who are a little more suspicious would point out saying, well, what about if another mask mandate came in? Can fuss be used to surveil businesses, to make sure everyone's wearing a mask as they enter, or while they're walking around um, not wearing a mask if they're supposed to, law enforcement could respond to it? Now, in the olden days, this wouldn't be as much of a concern because you'd still need manpower to actually watch the cameras. But today, we have something called... AI, artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence can watch thousands of cameras at one time looking for exactly the kinds of behaviors or things that they want uh, to be on the alert for. Um, But the problem here is what does government defines what they want to be alert for? I don't think anybody disagrees necessarily that government should be looking for murderers. But It's not really all that government does. I mean, Lexington has pointed to flock cameras as a reason why they caught murderers. But we don't really ask the question, why is it that a murderer is just driving around uh, completely freely and not really being looked for heavily? You would think that if somebody committed a murder, there should be a pretty large manhunt going on to find them um, where you wouldn't need flock cameras. You would be blasting their faces and names everywhere and people would be calling it in. So now you have these cameras that can be fed into an AI to be filtered um, where maybe a portions of it get filtered up to people who only watch maybe a small percentage of the video. And that determines whether you end up getting a visit or not. I'll give you a little story about myself while I was engaged and I'm still engaged in court battles with the governor, but during COVID, while I was in the middle of fighting, um, against mandates. He was very nice, but a KSB detective showed up at my business in my home um, simply to ask me questions about whether or not I'm a violent person or not. And um, while that's a little extreme, it certainly woke me up to how far the government's willing to go. I was simply a political enemy against Bashir. My resistance to his mandates and overreach was all being done through legal aspects. I was doing it through the courts. Um, I was not breaking a law at all. I was challenging laws within the courts. And due to this, um, the and you know I wasn't breaking a law because I was never charged with a crime, but due to the fact I was simply a political enemy of Bashir, KSB showed up to investigate me. Now, the officer did it, very nice guy. Um, I talked to him. He thought it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, he asked me about three questions and then left. And I was like, okay, I can check that off the list. Um, but you see that the government can certainly use these things in some pretty extreme ways. For those of you who say, well you're just super duper crazy or paranoid, may I remind you that your bank is empowered to spy on you by the government and they're not even to inform you of what laws are and what you can get in trouble for. You want to see your bank get uncomfortable? Ask them about what structuring is and why it's illegal. Good luck if they answer you. They will become very, very uncomfortable talking to you about it. What structuring is, is it is simply illegal. And now many of you are learning this for the first time that if you regularly deposit, around 9,500, 9,000 to 10,000-ish dollars into your bank accounts on a regular basis without going over 10,000. So let's say you own a business that does a pretty even amount of business. Let's say it does about $9,500 a week in business. So every week you deposit $9,500 into your bank account. You will find yourself being visited by an investigator. You could find your assets being seized by the government because you've broken a law called structuring. And that is, they believe you're evading IRS detection and other criminal detections because when you deposit over 10K at a time, uh, certain reports are made. And so you're trying to avoid those reports being made. So you're depositing just less than 10 grand at a time. That's kind of crazy. I mean, we live in a world where you get visited by federal agents if you deposit the wrong amount of money too often into your bank account. That is the world we do live in. And uh, not to mention what we see going on, of course, with January 6th, and the list goes on and on. So I'm not going to go down a conspiracy hole here. I could, but I won't. My only, I guess, statement to kind of tie this up will be this. Louisville, Lexington, their crime issue is not due to the fact they're not catching criminals. It's due to the fact that they're releasing criminals. It's not that they're catching enough. I mean, everybody already has a rap sheet a mile long that they arrest i mean you want me to believe that louisville who releases violent mass shooters and would be political assassins onto the street on a regular basis suddenly cares about public safety enough to put up hundreds upon thousands of cameras so they can catch a stolen car or two it's just hard for me to believe the point is i've never heard of a free society that was surrounded by surveillance. It doesn't take much to see how, whether it's COVID or something else, that these camera systems could be used to chill or violate people's rights and their privacy. Maybe your four-flock cameras. I can see the argument for them. The problem I have is I certainly don't trust the government with that level of surveillance. What about red light cameras though? So we don't want mass surveillance net, but perhaps we should put up red light cameras, a camera that simply takes a picture of you if you run a red light. There was a bill actually considered on this last year. And if you live in any of these major cities or even smaller cities, you will see that running red lights is certainly a problem. But what is your goal with red light cameras? Is it to prevent crime or is it to collect up more tickets? Is it to create safer streets? Well, if your goal is to create safer streets, red light cameras actually do the exact opposite. Studies have shown time and time again that red light cameras cause more accidents, not less. Why? Because people will dangerously, Because they're so paranoid about being caught by a camera, they'll dangerously slam on their brakes when a yellow light comes on, even in situations where it's probably safer and better for them to move forward, such as inclement weather. Not that they would have crossed through at a time that's illegal, but because they're worried that perhaps they might end up crossing through at a time that's illegal. They slam on their brakes and this causes more accidents. On top of that, there's constitutionality concerns here that I have, such as the fact that you have a right to face your accuser. Well, if the camera is your accuser, you can't exactly question them. And also as well, what if you're not the one driving your car? Well, now you either have to turn somebody in or your defense is basically mute. How do you question a camera? How do you claim it wasn't read at the time and the camera just got it wrong? I mean... I can't even get a clear stream on my Facebook lives every day for this show. Now you want me to tell you, tell me that we're trusting these internet and camera systems to determine whether or not a light was actually red. We can see that going wrong very quickly, regardless if you agree with me or not. Talk to your city councils and your uh, legislators about this issue and make sure you're making your voice voice heard. Because certainly people, this is going to become more and more of an issue. Because as police officers are harder to recruit and hire because the community as a whole has decided that they're super duper evil, instead of um, being nicer to them, the excuse for these will go in. And while the people wanting them may be well-intentioned, I believe the outcome will be exactly the opposite of what we hope, which would be for a freer and better society. Well, y'all, that's what I have time for today on the Andrew Kubriner Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. We'll catch you back here tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Have a great rest of your day.